Know that the Lord is God, it is He that made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him and bless His name. Let us pray. Almighty God, You are the one who is infinite, not bound by time and space like we are. You are eternal. You are free to do all that You will to do. You are glorious in holiness. You're full of love and compassion. You are abundant in grace and truth. And how do we know this? But because of your word, and most of all, through Jesus Christ. We praise you and give you praise this day. Your works everywhere praise you. And your glory is revealed in Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so we come before you in his name and pray that your Holy Spirit would inspire us as we praise you and worship you, the Holy Trinity, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Our first hymn is number 613, Give Thanks Unto the Lord Jehovah.
In Jesus Christ, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation and teaching us to renounce impiety and to lead, live lives that are self-controlled, upright, and godly. Jesus Christ gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify for himself a people of his own who are zealous for good deeds. Let us then confess our sin and our need for Jesus Christ to make us the people God intends us to be. Let us pray together. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, maker of all things, judge of all men, we confess our manifold sins which we most grievously have committed by thought, word, and deed against your divine majesty, provoking most justly your wrath and indignation against us. We do earnestly repent and are heartily sorry for these, our misdoings. The remembrance of them is grievous to us. The burden of them is intolerable. Have mercy upon us, most merciful Father, for your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ's sake. Forgive us all that is past and grant that we may ever hereafter serve and please you in newness of life to honor and glory of your name, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please stand for the assurance of pardon. People of Christ, God shows his love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled, we are saved by his life. Beloved people of God, I declare to you that all those who have faith in Jesus Christ and repent of their sin are truly forgiven of all their sin. And this is the good news of the gospel, so we say together, praise be to God. Holy people of God, Jesus promises us many things, but I'll point to two of those things. Peace give I to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. That's what he says in John 14. And Jesus promises that it is God's will that everyone who believes in him should have eternal life, and Jesus will raise him up at the last day, as he says in John 6. The Christian faith is in Jesus to do what he promised. Throughout the 20th century and up to the present, there have been many different ideologies, like Marxism, socialism, capitalism, communism, scientism, and others that don't have an ism attached to them, but they're still ideologies. An ideology is a system that claims it can render life, reorder life, based on an idea. There are many different ideologies, but they all promise two things. All of them have promised two things, equality and progress. Those who push these ideologies claim that they will make people equal and they will make life progress past the social ills that, uh, that affect us. However, no ideology has done what it promises. That's something worth thinking about. None of the ideologies, and even the new ones that come along, do not accomplish what they promise. Christianity does not believe in an ideology. It believes in Jesus Christ, who is a person not an idea. Our faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ who was raised and vindicated as the righteous servant of God and the Lord of heaven and earth. We don't trust in an idea. We trust in Jesus. 
And yes, not all the things he has promised have come to fruition yet, but we know that he, when he returns, they will be brought to fruition. That's part of what he promises, that it will be done when he returns and all things are judged and set right in, in, in the creation. So we trust in Jesus. We don't trust in the ideologies that come along. This is God's will for us in Jesus Christ, and let us say, Amen. Our hymn is number 635, All Glory, Laud, and Honor. 235. There we go again. Pray for those in need and the many concerns in our society and in this world. Let us pray. Almighty and sovereign God, we praise you that Jesus Christ humbled himself in order to raise us up. We praise you that though he was rich, he did for our sakes become poor so that by his poverty we might become rich, rich in the blessings of your salvation. Especially, we praise you that Jesus, having been put to death in the flesh, was made alive in the spirit, and that he has now gone to your right hand with angels, authorities, and powers made subject to him. We thank you for the witness of prophets, the prophets and apostles who wrote the scripture through whom you have spoken to us. We thank you that as those who have not seen and yet believe, like Abraham and David, we are blessed. 
We praise you for your sovereign and good purpose, for your good governance of your creation, and for the assurance that you are at work in all things for our good and your glory, even though so many times we can't see how. Grant us the faith, we pray, so to believe that we may boldly live loving, believing, and witnessing and rejoicing in the name of Jesus Christ. Here are prayers of gratitude in prayer for our witness in this world. We pray for the church, the community of your grace, which you are building up in this world by your word and spirit. For this congregation, for our presbytery, for your church throughout the world, we ask for your mercy and grace. Especially we pray for grace truly to be of one heart and soul, Forgive our sins, correct our errors, and make us to serve you by serving one another. See fit, we pray, to bless us with growth. Enable us more faithfully to witness to your word. And hear our prayers for the church and our missionaries, Ben Westerveld in Quebec, Mark Richline in Uruguay, their families with them, the churches where they work. We also pray for New City Church in Grand Rapids and their pastor, Tony Miles, for Dale Collison and Harvest, OPC in Grand Rapids, and for Wes Reynolds, the stated clerk of our presbytery. Here are our prayers for these and others in the church. We pray for the world and for our nations and rulers. Do not let us forget that Jesus Christ is Lord. Bring rest from conflict, we pray, in Syria, in Mexico, in Ukraine, Afghanistan, Israel and Palestine, China, Yemen, the Korean Peninsula. Preserve your church in those countries and show mercy to us in this land. May there be good policies that stop the violence from increasing in our cities. Bless and guide our leaders, especially we pray for Joe Biden, our president, and Governor uh, Whitmer, our senators, representatives, the Supreme Court as, it's, as it renders its decisions. May we always obey your word and bear witness to the redemption of Christ for your creation. Hear our prayers for those who rule over us. We pray for the elderly that they would not be neglected. May we visit them and see to their needs. Help us to listen to their wisdom. Here are prayers for those who are older who come to mind. We pray for those who are sick, for those who are suffering, for those who are discouraged, for those who are struggling, for those who are grieving. We pray you would, we, we do give you thanks for the healing, renewal, and protection that you've given us this past week. And we pray for those with needs of various kinds. We pray for Shirley and Jacqueline, for Fawn and Eduardo, for Terry, Frida, for Jeff, for our friends Becky, Chris Barker, Mrs. Mesner, Angie, Karen, Judy, Tom, Bill, Phil, as well as others we name to you in silence. We give you thanks for hearing our prayers, and we are confident that you 
are our life and that you support our life and that when we come to the end of our days, you are there to bring us to into your presence. And so we pray for all of these to know that, to believe that, and trust in Jesus for that, um, that peace. For the ministry of the word made effective by your spirit, for the preservation of this congregation, we do pray. Continue to give us your grace. May, be, may we be witnesses to your salvation in Jesus Christ here and in every place we live. And bring many more people to Christ and into the family of his church. And now, Almighty Father, ruler of all things in heaven and on earth, accept the prayers of your people and strengthen us to do your will in the new life of your spirit. Through Jesus Christ, who taught us when we pray, to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let us present our gifts and offerings to the Lord. Please be seated and um, join me in uh, praying for God's uh, spiritual illumination uh, on our reading today. Lord our God, we thank you for bringing us to this time of the week where we uh, come together and open your word and um, we pray that by your spirit we would uh, have our ears and our minds and our hearts opened uh, to the beautiful life-giving words that you have for us. 
um, and that uh, our the soil of our hearts would be soft to uh, remember these and to uh, let uh, your influence in us grow um, through them today and in the days and weeks to come. We pray these things in Christ's name and to his glory. Amen. Our Old Testament reading this morning comes from Jeremiah uh, chapter 23. And this will be the first eight verses of that chapter. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, And I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days... Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, The Lord is our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, As the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them. Then they shall dwell in their own land. Our Psalter response is from Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. From the womb of the morning, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. The Lord is at your right hand. He will execute judgment among the nations. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Our epistle reading comes from Romans, uh, the first chapter of Romans, and the first seven verses of that um, chapter and that letter. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship 
to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, our gospel reading comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verses 35 through 37. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. The word of the Lord. Well, the text we heard this morning from the Gospel of Mark is a bit of a puzzle. We've run into a few other texts like this before, but it's a bit of a puzzle, and it's not just the meaning of what Jesus says, but the text itself. It comes off like Jesus raises an academic question. Jesus, the scholar, asking the questions about Scripture, pontificating on a text of the Old Testament. In this section of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem on his way to die on the cross. Once he arrived in Jerusalem, there was a steady conflict between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. You could go back, in the, in the, we're in chapter 12, go back to chapter 11, and you can just see this after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the steady stream of uh, Jewish leaders coming to him and the conflict between those leaders and Jesus, the Pharisees, the priests, the Sadducees, and the scribes. Our story does mention the teachers of the law or the scribes, but it's not really about them like the other stories. In the other conflict stories, someone else always begins the discussion. Our text is focused on the meaning of Psalm 110. And this psalm was widely understood by the Jews as a psalm about the Messiah. There was a strong expectation for God's Messiah to come in the first century. And it wasn't just the scribes who interpreted it this way. So even though it mentions the scribes, just about everybody assumed Psalm 110 was talking about the Messiah. And right in the middle of Jesus' conflict with the religious leaders, Jesus raises a question about one of the Psalms. And it sounds like the story or the sequence jumps from the steady stream of Jewish leaders coming at Jesus to Jesus' comments on Psalm 110 in the temple. It just seems to jump from that those conflict stories to his comments on Psalm 110 in the temple. Now, some scholars believe our reading this morning is a partial text from a conflict story. The first part of it is missing. It may have been part of a conflict story that opens with a question from one of Jesus' antagonists, such as in Mark 12, Verse 18, it talks about the Sadducees. It says, and Sadducees came to him, and they asked him a question, and then it goes into Jesus' response. Or it could have been um, you know, earlier, uh, another story where the scribes asked him a question, and then he, uh, the scribe asked him a question, and Jesus responded to them. There's always someone provoking or, or asking a question, 
then Jesus responds to it in the conflict stories, except this story. So scholars have thought, well, maybe the beginning of it is missing. That, that's possible. That's not unusual uh, for, for ancient texts to have that happen. Without the conflict, this text sounds like Jesus is raising an academic question, something to debate just for the sake of debating. Have you ever done that? Have you ever raised, maybe you're feeling a little, you know, a little wild or something, and so you pose a question with some friends or some people you know, you're poking them a little bit, and you raise a question just to stir it up, or, or you know what they think about something, and you just start rattling off on whatever it is they're talking about in politics, theology, whatever it might be, and, and, uh, and you just raise it for the sake of starting a conversation, a debate. Scholars surmise that this story had an opening that more obviously tied it to the other stories in this section of the Gospel of Mark. So if it did have an opening at the beginning that referred to a scribe, another scribe coming to Jesus, or a group of scribes coming to Jesus and, and uh, saying, well, how, you know, how can you talk about the Messiah like you do when Psalm 110 says this, and then Jesus responds. That, that's, that would fit in with the sequence of stories there. But this would mean, if it has that kind of an opening, that it's not an academic question raised by Jesus out of the blue, which is the way it sort of comes off as if Jesus is just suddenly going on some kind of an explanation of Psalm 110. Well, if we take our lesson from Mark as an academic question, then it makes for a very short sermon. Unless, of course, the preacher, unless I want to make it tediously more academic, I could go into all these other um, academic points about the text and, and bore you with that. Um, I purposely don't bring my exegetical work into the sermon. Some preachers do that, but I figure that's, that's the background. You should always assume that I've tried to do the work that needs to be done to understand the sermon, the exegesis, the reading it in the original language, outlining it, reading commentaries. You know, all of that is lying behind all of this, but I don't feel like I need to bring it into the text because that's not exactly preaching. That's, that's different. So I could do that and make it more tediously academic, To treat this text as an academic question starts to pull it out of history and away from Jesus among his contemporaries. The academic point, if I were to make it as short and sweet, the Jews in the first century understood several texts in the Old Testament to say that God's Messiah would be David's heir or would be Davidic. There are passages like Isaiah 11 that says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, Jesse, was uh, you know David's father, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So it's referring to the house of David, and that a, there will become another descendant who will bear fruit. So Isaiah 11 was understood as a messianic passage. Uh, Jeremiah 23, there are several places in, in Jeremiah, but we heard this morning, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely. And, and so there's this expectation for a messianic king, a Davidic king who would come. Ezekiel 34 is another one. It says, And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, he shall feed them, and be their shepherd. And Ezekiel's not talking about suddenly the old, the first David is going to come back to life and all that. He's talking about the heir of David. David had long died by the time Ezekiel was prophet. So again, it's looking forward to that Davidic heir who would come, and there were lots of texts about that. 
And so the Jews in the first century understood many texts in the Old Testament to say that God's Messiah would be David's heir. God's Messiah would be Davidic. Jesus does not deny that in our lesson this morning, but he teaches that the Messiah is more than the Davidic heir. And so he points to Psalm 110. Using a certain style, it's actually a Jewish idiom, he teaches that the Messiah is not just the son of David, he is the Lord. There's the message in this text, he's the Lord. And that's an important point for understanding who Jesus is. But if our task is academic and it's just to understand the text and then hopefully to believe it, then we're done. Sermon's done. Somebody get their watch out. How quick was it? I'm assuming you all believe Jesus is more than the Davidic heir God promised um, in, the old, in the scripture. I, I assume you believe that. I, I've met all of you. I know most of you well. You believe that. You believe he's Lord. And that's certainly the faith we confess We confess with the Nicene Creed, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, right? So we believe that. The point, Jesus' point is well taken to us, that he is more than the Davidic heir, he's the Lord. We believe it, end of sermon, if it's just academic. However, our task as Christians is not just to believe it. If we follow Jesus, then we're to do what he's doing in our lesson today, and that's what we might miss if we just treat this as a commentary on Psalm 110. We must learn what Jesus is doing in our text and, quite frankly, what all of his apostles did, and we see this in the later epistles and writings of the New Testament. And then we are to follow them in doing the same thing. So it's not just making an academic point that Jesus is Lord. We are to do what Jesus was doing in this text and what his apostles did later. In our lesson, Jesus teaches who he is to his contemporaries. The problem with making any text in Scripture academic is that we can separate it from those who first heard it. We always put ourselves in there first. We, well, I should say always, but we tend to put ourselves in there first. Like we're the ones that this text is written for. It's speaking right to us. And I, I think one of the most obvious uh, books or writings in the New Testament that people read this way is Revelation. We, we, we read it and we just automatically think about how this relates to the events going on today. It does, but not in the way a lot of people think it does. But it was written to seven churches back in the first century. It was written to them first. Somebody once said, I don't remember who it was, maybe a professor of mine, that, that we, it's like we're reading someone else's mail when we read the epistles. We're reading someone else's mail. Paul or John or whoever Peter wrote to these other churches. These letters to those churches, and then we've, that, those letters have been handed down to us, but we're reading someone else's mail. Now, you've got to be careful about that. It doesn't mean we're not included because we understand that in the church we're brought into it, and, and so it becomes our mail also. But it was originally written to these first people who would hear it, these first churches, the first hearers. Of, of the uh, epistle or of the gospels or whatever. So, <clears throat> um, find out where I am here. I went off on that. <laughs> yeah, we can separate it from those who first heard it. And we need to be careful. That's what ac- academic, I'm not trying to disrespect academic work. I rely on that. I've enjoyed it very much. But it can sometimes separate from those who first heard it. Listening to scripture in the abstract can leave off those to whom Jesus was speaking. 
Jesus was speaking to the Jews in his day who had certain beliefs about who the Messiah would be. There's not much context with this story. That's why I'm saying some scholars think that the first part of it somehow was lost or or cut off. But Mark does tell us that Jesus was still teaching in the temple. And around him were gathered, based on what we know from the earlier stories, he never left the temple, so he's in the temple. Around him were gathered who? The Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the priests, the Sadducees, and the scribes. Also, there was the crowd of Jews who were mentioned at the end of our reading, who Mark says, the great throng heard him gladly, the great crowd. Jesus was teaching his contemporaries who he is. Now, it's not just that the belief that the Messiah is the son of David doesn't go far enough. That's not the point. Jesus was speaking to his contemporaries about who he is. And he chose the temple where he came the closest to revealing his identity. Aren't you, when you read the scriptures and and you're you're reading one of the conversations Jesus is having with somebody, and and he gets a little bit... um, little uh, mysterious, you know, and he doesn't, you just, you want, the person's asking, like Nicodemus, and, and he wants to know, and who are you, and all this kind of stuff, and Jesus says it, but doesn't say it real directly, don't you just want him to say, just say it, just say who you are. Well, the closest he came to that is right there in the temple in this story. He's coming so close to saying, I am the Lord, <clears throat> and it's at the temple. Jesus uses Psalm 110 to challenge the Jews of his day. And as I said, this psalm was a text generally believed to be about the Messiah. Everybody thought Psalm 110 was about the Messiah. So Jesus is getting right at their belief about the Messiah. There were a number of psalms considered to be messianic or about the Messiah, such as Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? goes on, says, against the Lord and against his anointed. Who's the anointed? Well, in Greek, you translate anointed Christ. The Messiah, against the Lord and his Messiah. Psalm 72 says, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. The royal son being that messianic figure. Psalm 89 says, He shall cry to me, You are my God, uh, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And that was understood as a messianic psalm. There were lots of psalms that were interpreted that way. The Jews believed Psalm 110 was one of these, that it was written by David. It was a psalm of David. It's attributed to David. So Jesus' challenge to the Jews with Psalm 110 is this. Let's, let's get it out there. David is the one speaking. So everybody assumed that. The Lord said to my Lord. David's the one who said that. The first Lord the psalm mentions is God, Yahweh. The second Lord, the Lord said to my Lord. The second Lord was understood by the Jews to be the Messiah. This interpretation of the psalm would be Yahweh addressing the Messiah. But that can't be David because David says, my Lord. In the Greek, it's even more pronounced. We don't use English, don't speak this way usually very often. But in the Greek, it actually says, the Lord said to the Lord of me, which makes it even stronger. And if you follow this all out, then the one whom God addresses is the Lord of David. He's greater than David. The Messiah is Lord over David. Okay, So that's the basic point that uh, challenge that Jesus is making. 
David testifies in Psalm 110 that the Messiah is greater than he is. Jesus was not making an academic point. He's revealing who he is to his contemporaries. He is the Christ who is the Lord, and he's challenging the Jews. The point Jesus made to his Jewish contemporaries is that believing the Christ is Davidic is fine. He doesn't disagree with that, but he's more than the son of David. Okay, so now are we end at the end of the sermon. Maybe it's the second shortest sermon that I could preach. It's not the end. It's hardly the end. Listening to our lesson today from Mark and following Jesus, we're to speak the message of this text to our contemporaries. If we're going to follow what Jesus is doing in this, it's not academic. He's making a point about who he is to his contemporaries. We are to speak the message of this text to our contemporaries. Jesus spoke his message to his contemporaries, and we're to do the same. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what the writers of Scripture uh, were doing when they wrote their letters, or even when they preached. They were not making abstract academic points about God and our salvation. They were writing and speaking to their contemporaries. Now, that's very easy to see with the apostles in the New Testament. On the day of Pentecost, Peter stood up, and who did he address? Did he address you on that day of Pentecost, uh, 50 days after Jesus rose from the dead? No, you weren't born yet. You weren't there. He's addressing the Jews and the proselytes gathered at that feast, on that feast day. Peter spoke to his contemporaries who were gathered right in front of him. I hate to tell you this, but you weren't in his mind. Now, you were in God's mind, but you weren't in his mind. He's speaking to his contemporaries. Paul, on his missionary journey, spoke to the Jews and the Gentiles in the cities he visited. He addressed real people standing right in front of him. Each of the epistles was written to real churches that were established in the first century. And there were real occasions for the letters that involved real people. They were not written. The epistles were not written for academic reasons. Because the Jews and the Jewish and Gentile Christians in the Roman house churches were at odds with each other, and that's, that's a pretty good conclusion as we read through the letter of Romans, that there was some conflict, there was some tension between the Jews and the Roman, Jewish Christians, Roman Christians, um, and they were in all these different churches. You can see those churches in, in chapter 16. The Apostle Paul wrote his epistle to them, and that was one of the reasons. It's because there was this tension between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. Real people, real problems, real church. Because the Corinthian Christians, another letter that Paul wrote, the Corinthian Christians were bombastically pursuing immoral practices. They were ignoring the poor, like when they celebrated the Lord's Supper. The rich would go ahead and eat all the good food, and the poor would be over in a corner wondering if they're going to get a scrap. Flouting the sacraments, merging pagan spirituality and morality with the Christian faith and life. This is all happening in the Corinthian church. The apostle writes to them because of those things going on with those real Christians in that real church in the first century. We're to follow Jesus and the apostles and speak the message of Scripture to our contemporaries. Now, instead of staying in a bubble, which is easy for us to want to do, especially when the heat gets turned up in our society, staying in our little bubble and saying the things to each other that we already believe and feeling good about it, And and generally avoiding our contemporaries, not saying you all do that, but it's easy to want to do that. Instead of staying in a bubble, we are to know our contemporaries. And there's plenty of excellent work that evaluates the American society and the Christian church. 
One such work is by a fellow named Aaron Wren, who has written about American secularization. He identifies three distinct stages of American secularization. So uh, the first is the positive world, the second is the neutral world, the third is the negative world. And I've mentioned these stages before. I've brought, brought one up once in another sermon. So I'm going to use these developments in American society to make clear to those uh, make clear those to whom we must take the message of our lesson from Mark. I'm going to use those categories to say, okay, here are our contemporaries and here are those to whom we have to bring this, the message from the lesson of Mark. The message that Jesus is more than they think he is. He's Lord. Um, according to Eric Wren, the positive world of American society existed prior, well not existed, but was prior, was, was dominant prior to 1994. If you want to know more about why he chooses those certain dates, you're going to have to go look up his work. Um, but it, it, it's, he makes a good case. This is how Wren explains it. I'm more interested in the kinds of worlds he's talking about. This is how Wren explains it. In the positive world, society at large retains a mostly positive view of Christianity. To be known as a good church-going man or woman like you all remains part of being an upstanding citizen. If you want to be known as a good citizen in the United States, then you will have a church membership and you will regularly go to church. That's the way the view in the, in the positive world of, of our society. Publicly being a Christian is a status enhancer. It actually enhances your status in the positive world to be a Christian. Christian moral norms are the basic moral norms of society and violating them can bring negative consequences. Okay, so that's what Wren, how he defines the positive world. I knew this kind of world, and a lot of you knew this kind of world when you were growing up. But none of my children have known it. My oldest son, my son, who is the oldest, is 32. So he was born in 1990. So not that dates can kind of rigidly fix things, but in 1994, he's four years old. He's too young to have appreciated the dominance of that positive world. He's too young to appreciate that uh, positive worldview of Christianity. It was phasing out when he was a child. For us Christians, the question must be asked, who do people outside the faith of the church in the positive world think Jesus is? This is not a hypothetical because there are still people who think in terms of the positive world. But who do people outside the faith of the church in the positive world think Jesus is? And that's a very big question. It would take a long time to answer it. This could go from the shortest sermon to the longest sermon ever. But I've personally encountered two perceptions of Jesus in the positive world that I can point out to you. And you encounter them also, but I'm just going to give you a couple examples. One co-ops Jesus for its own agenda. As Wren says, in the positive world, being an American citizen means that you are a good churchgoer. So following Jesus makes you a good American in this positive kind of world. And it's not too hard to take it a step further and say Jesus is a good American. If you follow Jesus, you're a good American. Jesus is a good American. This understanding of who Jesus is shows up when people claim that Jesus is on America's side in international politics. It shows up when political candidates imply Jesus is for their policies. It can even show up when Jesus is invoked to defend a particular moral position. 
In the positive world, both conservatives and liberals try to interact with Christianity positively. Sometimes politicians do this, like Nancy Pelosi, who just went to the Vatican, and the Guardian writer, a guy named Brad Chilcott, who chided Christians, fellow Christians, to remember that Jesus was on the side of the poor and the exploited. Following Jesus requires we love people in costly solidarity and requires us to expose any ideology that pretends, <clears throat> excuse me, pretends inequality is natural or ordained by God. And that is some of what he says in there that's true. Jesus definitely reached out to the poor and exploited and, and brought them the good news of the gospel and, and cared for them, sinners and tax collectors and others like that. But inequality, that ex- refers to his, this guy's agenda. Inequality is a modern way of thinking, not, not the way that you would think back in the days of the Bible. That doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong, but I'm just trying to make the point that here's a guy who's trying to use Christianity to co- use Jesus to co-op his agenda, or to uh, fit in with his agenda. To all those who would try to link Jesus to their agenda, we must bear witness that Jesus is more than their agenda. That's important, and we've got to stop and think about that sometimes. He's more than our agenda. Many times, or sometimes, he may even be against your agenda. He's Lord. He's Lord over all things. And that means Jesus is Lord over politics and policies and agendas. They all fall under his judgment. Instead of bringing him down and trying to fit him in and make him along, put him alongside our policies and judgments and politics, let's remember he's Lord over those. Those who believe he's Lord stop trying to force Jesus into their agenda. Instead, they will submit their agendas to Jesus and his teaching. In fact, they will be more circumspect and set out their policies and politics with greater humility. They will pray that Jesus will help them see problems in our society more clearly and grant them wisdom in making decisions. That's one way in a positive world that people try to, uh, how they see Jesus and how they try to fit him in with their Agendas. Another way people see Jesus in the positive world is that he's a good moral person. <clears throat> I had a conversation not long ago with a woman I know who is about my age. She had just had a bruising email from someone who beat her up unfairly. Even though she was deeply hurt, this woman told me how she tried to respond with compassion and kindness. And then she told me that she tries to follow in the way of Jesus, who was good and compassionate to people, which was true. He is, he is that. But for her, Jesus is a good moral role model. That's the primary way she sees Jesus. He's a good moral role model. In the positive world, this is a popular way of thinking for many in our society and in the church. To all those who believe Jesus is primarily a good moral example, we bear witness that he is the Lord. He rules over our whole life, not just our moral responses to people. Jesus is Lord over sin, death, and the devil, and so he's much more than a good moral role model for us. The positive world has a mostly positive view of Christianity. Wren, this guy who makes those, sets up those distinctions, those developments in our society, Wren remarks that the natural—he uh, identifies the natural—I'm uh, sorry—the neutral world as dominant. The time period for the neutral world is 1994 to 2014. And again, I don't know exactly how he comes up with these dates, 
but um, I like the descriptions he has of, of these worlds. So this is how he defines the neutral world. Society takes a neutral stance toward Christianity. Christianity no longer has privileged status, but it's not disfavored either. Being publicly known as a Christian has neither a positive nor a negative impact on one's social status. Christianity is a valid option within a pluralistic public square. Christian moral norms retain some residual effect in society. So that's the neutral world. Who do people in the neutral world think Jesus is? Well, they think he's one option among many. They might say it like this, if Jesus is good for you, that's great, something else works for me. They don't outright reject Jesus, but they do limit him. In the neutral world, Jesus is compartmentalized. He's good for a certain segment of the population, namely Christians. However, that's about as far as it goes. Now, to those who understand Jesus according to a neutral world, we must bear witness that Jesus is Lord over everything. He's Lord over everyone, whether they believe in him or not. Jesus is Lord over the Muslim, the Jew, the atheist, Americans, the Chinese, the Russians, and everyone. He's Lord over the president, over the Congress, the Supreme Court, every political action group in the world. He rules over them. They are subject to him. It's always good. I had a professor once point out to, to me that Philippians 2, you know, we use it a lot. I, I like to refer to it a lot. Jesus is um, there. He's, he's, uh, he's uh, exalted as Lord, right? And every knee shall bow. And this, this fellow pointed out that that doesn't mean they all willingly bow their knee. But everyone, whether they're his followers or against him, will bow the knee when he's revealed. So he rules over everything, every, everyone, the, and they're all subject to him. And that's our message to those in that neutral world. And finally, Wren identifies the negative world. The positive world has a mostly positive view of Christianity. The neutral world does not privilege Christianity, nor does it, does it disfavor it, so it's neutral. And then the negative world, which is dominant right now, according to Wren. From 2014 to the present, that's the time of this negative world, when it's dominant. And this is how he defines it. The negative world, in the negative world, society has come to have a negative view of Christianity. Being known as a Christian is a social negative, particularly in the elite domains of society. Christian morality is expressly repudiated and seen as a threat to the public good and the new public moral order. Subscribing to Christian moral views or or violating the secular moral order brings negative consequences. Now, most of us Christians are aware that the society in which we live is becoming more hostile toward Christianity. And there have always been intellectual attacks. There have been periods when there have been outright uh, physical attacks against Christians, but there have always been intellectual attacks against Christians coming from the sidelines of society in our culture. Thomas Paine, there have been others who've just just really tried to take Christianity to task. So they've come from the sidelines, however. Now they're out in the open and they're more flagrant. Our opponents are more urgent because, as Wren says, they see Christian morality as a threat to the public good, a threat to the public good and the new public moral order that they're trying to create. In the negative world, we're told what is wrong with the Christian faith. It's not neutral anymore. It tells you what's wrong with it. And here are some of the attacks. 
Christianity preys on the innocent. Christianity is anti-intellectual, anti-scientific. Christianity sanctions slavery. Christianity is misogynistic, in other words, hates women. Christianity is homophobic. Christianity produces sexual misery. I found all those. I didn't make those up. Those are just a few. You can find a whole lot, many more attacks. And quite often you'll notice the attacks concern sexuality. Often, with the strikes from those in the negative world, the Christian faith and teaching is separated from Jesus Christ. So it talks about Christianity. It's an attack on Christianity. For example, I've heard people challenge the historic Christian teaching that homosexuality is a sin by asserting that Jesus never said it was wrong. Where does Jesus say that it's wrong to be gay? That's, that's what they'll say. They try to drive a wedge between Jesus and Christian moral teaching. But the historic moral teaching of the church is rooted in Jesus' teaching and his upholding the moral order of God. If, if that is a question that you've puzzled over, you've heard that claim that Jesus never said it's wrong to be gay, um, and you're puzzling over that, feel free to ask me later um, you know, how we can say that that teaching of the church is rooted in Jesus' teaching. Um, but the historic moral teaching of the church is rooted in Jesus' teaching, and it upholds the moral order of God. Jesus' teaching and the historic moral teaching of the church on sexuality can't be ripped apart. Now, there might be some things the church has said here and there that really don't have a basis in the Scripture and Jesus' teaching, but uh, the basic things the church has taught all along, uh, moral teaching, um, does have its roots in Jesus' teaching, and it can't be ripped apart. That's where we got it from. That's what it's rooted in. But increasingly, people in our society are calling out Jesus himself. They're not just saying, this is what's wrong with Christianity. They're calling out Jesus himself. They say he lied. Some have accused him of being racist. He was a misguided revolutionary in the first century, others assert. And in more subtle ways, Jesus is attacked by calling into question his sexuality. It's been suggested that Jesus was sexually interested in Mary Magdalene, who poured oil on his feet and washed them with her hair. Some have claimed that Jesus had a relationship with the beloved disciple, who is probably John, the Apostle John. Now, to those who attack Jesus for Christian morality, it's one thing to have to answer for Christianity, but... This sermon and this text is about who Jesus is. So to those who attack Jesus for Christian morality, we must bear witness that he's the Lord of, of our morality. He's Lord of all morality. He's greater than our moral desires and ideas. Our sexual behavior is under his lordship. We're not the lords of our own behavior. We don't just get to live however we want and do whatever we want. We are created by God and Jesus. All things were made through Christ and he's lord over his creation. We're not the lords of our own behavior. We, uh, what we do is subject to him. And our actions have consequences. And those consequences finally lead to Jesus Christ, the Lord. So all of these worlds, the positive world, the neutral world, and the negative world, are all present today. I did say that my son did not know the positive world like I did, but that doesn't mean it isn't around, it just wasn't dominant when he grew up. These pres these, all these worlds are still around. That woman I talked to um, in, in the, uh, you know, who, who saw Jesus as a good moral example, she's still alive. They're, they're, so these views are all around, but the negative world is overtaking 
the positive and the neutral worldviews of Christianity and Jesus. May God give us grace to follow Jesus and confess that he is Lord to our contemporaries. Let us pray. Let your continual mercy, O Lord, cleanse and defend your church. And because it cannot continue in safety without your aid, protect and govern it always by your goodness. And make us bold to testify that Jesus Christ is Lord, who lives with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Now let us get up. Our testimony begins here. You've heard the word of God. Now we confess our faith, and with that faith and the Lord's Supper will go out into the world. Let us confess our faith with the creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Our hymn is number 174, O Christ, our King, Creator, Lord.
Lord has caused his wondrous work to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. According to the Lord's institution, this bread and cup is set apart for a com- from a common use to his holy use. Our Lord, on the night of his arrest, took bread, he blessed God, he broke it, and gave it to his disciples, and he did the same with the cup. We offer our thanksgiving to the Lord and receive his nourishment for our new life with confidence in the promise of the Lord who declares, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people. And I will be their God. So having again heard the voice of Christ in scripture and sermon, let us come to his table and receive his gifts. All who have been baptized, who have publicly professed faith in Jesus Christ, and our communicant members of the Christian church are welcome to come and share in this joyful feast of our Lord. Join with me in giving thanks to God for our new life in Christ and our salvation. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Almighty God, we do give you our thanks and praise. You are the God of truth. By the breath of your mouth you have spoken your word, and all things came into being. You fashioned us in your image, you placed us in the garden of your delight. And though we chose the path of rebellion, you would not abandon your own. And again and again, you drew us into your covenant of grace. You gave your people the law. You taught us by your prophets to look for your reign of justice and mercy and peace. And as we watch for the signs of your kingdom here on earth, we echo the song of the host in heaven who are forevermore praising you and saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might. Heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Lord God, you are the most holy one. You are enthroned in splendor and light. And yet in the coming of your son, Jesus Christ, you reveal the power of your love made perfect in our human weakness. You reveal your grace for our salvation. Embracing our humanity, Jesus showed us the way of salvation that is in him, loving us to the end. And he gave himself to death for us, dying for his own. He set us free from the bonds of sin that we might rise and reign with him in glory. So our faith is, is in Jesus Christ. And we say that faith that has been said, the mystery of our faith that's been said in the church for centuries. Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Therefore, we proclaim the death that he suffered on the cross. We celebrate his resurrection, his bursting from the tomb. We rejoice that he reigns at your right hand on high, and we look for his coming in glory. As we recall the one perfect sacrifice of our redemption, Father, by your Holy Spirit, may the eating of this bread and the drinking of this cup be for us a participation in the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Form us into the likeness of Christ and make us a perfect offering in your sight. Look with favor on your people and in your mercy hear the cry of our hearts. Bless the earth, heal the sick, let the oppressed go free, and fill your church with power from on high. Gather your people from the ends of the earth to feast with all your holy people at the table in your kingdom, where the new creation is brought to perfect perfection in Jesus Christ our Lord. By whom and with whom and in whom, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, 
All honor and glory be yours, Almighty Father, forever and ever. And we make our thanksgiving, we offer our thanksgiving to you together, saying, Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body given for you. And he did the same. He took the cup and said, This cup is the cup of the new covenant, sealed in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me.
Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Take and eat this bread and drink this cup and remember Christ's body and blood given for you. Receive it with faith and thanksgiving. Take and eat and drink. Let us pray. Eternal God, you love us, you have chosen us in Christ, redeemed us through your Son, whose body was broken, his blood was shed for us. Grant that we may go into the world in the joy and strength of your Spirit to serve you and others through Christ the Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. Our final hymn is number 311, Hail to the Lord's Anointed. Son and the Holy Spirit be upon you all now and forever. Amen. Amen.
Important news today. It is a very important birthday. Everyone's thinking, well, yeah, something in the bulletin or something. Today is John Calvin's birthday. So there you go. Uh, and speaking of John Calvin, I like the segue, uh, today's uh, CE class will continue on in John Calvin's study of the Christian's life. And uh, I'm trying to remember what the topic is today, Chaz. It's how, 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 we, should li- how we should live in this present life. So it'll be an important conversation, and Mr. Klaus will be leading that for us this morning. Um, also, uh, this Wednesday at Deneen's house, um, we will have the women's prayer meeting at 9 a.m. Notice it's Wednesday. Normally it would be on a Thursday, but it's Wednesday uh, this week. Um, and there was one of the, oh, uh, session meeting will be on Saturday, so please be in prayer for the session as we uh, undertake work. We've got some important conversations going on, and so we would certainly appreciate your prayers for that as we meet. Is there anything else? Uh, just a quick update. Um, so I visited the Guzmans, uh, Shirley, in the hospital a couple times this week, and she's doing much better as of Friday. So I don't have a time, but it seems like maybe today even she might be released if she hasn't already been released. Um, but they very much appreciate your prayers um, and your contact. And, and even if they can't respond all the time because they're focused on you know, her illness, um, you know, continue to do that, please, and reach out to them. Um, I'm not sure if that was picked up, but uh, just to for those who are watching remotely, uh, Shirley Guzman, as you know, if you follow the prayer chain, has been um, in the hospital and thinks she's doing much better and uh, may be released as early as today, uh, which is which is wonderful news. And that um, they uh, appreciate your thoughts and prayers, and we should continue to to do so for one another. So, anything else? Oh, I forgot. Two weeks. Uh, so in two weeks, uh, which is a... There, there's... We, we'll find stuff. Yeah, we'll find stuff. Um, so uh, in two weeks, on, a, on the Saturday the 23rd, uh, what time? 10. 10, 10 o'clock, uh, we will be meeting at the church to do various cleanup tasks, primarily focused on the outside, uh, trimming the bushes. I noticed we've got a lot of grass issues in the sidewalk that need to be dealt with, uh, so we will deal with that as well. Um, just clean up and everything else. There's stuff not only on the outside, but on the inside that need cleaning as well, so 
uh, please come. There's plenty of work for everyone. So if there's nothing else, we will go ahead and dismiss. Thank you.